you have a copy of the scriptures, and I hope you do, you can turn it somewhere around the middle, and you can find the story of Jonah. We're hanging out for a handful of weeks in the study, the story of Jonah. Just because it was so fun the first time, if you're a kid in here who's not normally in here, I need you to say what's up when I say with three, okay? One, two, three. Man, that was good, except for some older person over here. I think it was Shane. But anyway, um, he's not a kid, though. It's debatable. Anyhow, a, uh, a thing that I decided as a parent um, that in my, in my big, long list of things that I'm going to botch as a parent, there are many, I promise you. But one thing I decided, even before I was a parent, I just remember just having a, a hard-set mind about this, was that I was never going to leave space for my kids not to know that I love them that I was going to tell them I loved them. And, and so, man, they would tell you, right, they're probably embarrassed right now. I didn't run this past them. But they would tell you that, that there are probably even times they wish I would just, just let them know that I love them, but I didn't have to say it, okay? Because, I, I mean, I'll say it when they're getting out of the car. I'll say it when they're getting in the car. I'll say it when they're going to bed at nighttime. I'll say it when they're brushing their teeth in the morning. There are times when we're going out for a sporting event, and I just go ahead and throw it in there, right? There are times when we're just sitting on the couch as a family enjoying something, watching TV, and I'll go, hey, and Dylan will look at me and go, I love you, right? Like, I know that it probably drives them nuts sometimes. So much so, a couple of years ago, our youngest, Freeman, he, he was kind of doing his own thing and playing with some of his toys. And I'll never forget, I said, Freeman. He said, yeah. And he was still playing with his toys. I was like, no, listen with your eyes. Look at that. And he looked at me and said, Freeman, now I love you. And I said, I know. You've done it a thousand times. <laughs> Which, to me, I went, okay, I love my son and dad, right? Drive them nuts, because I love them so much. But, but I, I thought about that moment, because as we're kind of in week two now, as we're jumping into this idea of the fierce mercy of God, what we're seeing is that our God is absolutely aggressive. He's absolutely, relentlessly committed to showing us mercy, <laughs> He's, he's not kind of just sitting back and when there's an opportunity and he thinks it's right, he doesn't do a whole lot of debate about, well, I'm not sure if merciful is a good approach all the time. God is a God who just is over and over and over again coming strong to show mercy to his people. He's fierce about showing mercy. But if we read and read honestly the story of Jonah... If we read honestly the presentation of Scripture and understand how aggressive he sometimes is about bringing his mercy into the lives of those who need it, if we read it honestly, there might be times where we might not want to say it here gathered today, but if we are just real about the core of us, we might go, oh, God, I don't want it that bad. <laughs> don't say it again. Don't say it again. We saw the story of Jonah last week. We only read the first three verses. We heard about a guy who was unimpressive, who hadn't asked God for a lead role, who hadn't really done much noteworthy elsewhere in Scripture for the most part. And all of a sudden, God just comes to him and speaks to him and interacts with him. And God is showing grace and kindness and that he initiates with him. And he tells him, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, a place that was not unnoteworthy. It was very well known, but it was well known for all the wrong kind of things heinous, ridiculous kinds of stuff. You can read about the kings of the Ninevites and how they just did some gruesome things to people that they were in power over. You can read about the worship that took place in Nineveh of multiple gods and just, just weird, bizarre, harsh stuff, man. It was just tough. And, and God says, listen, to that place over there that doesn't love me, isn't trying to honor me, that place over there who's not a bunch of Israelite people, a bunch of Gentile people to that place over there, I want you to go. And we read 
that Jonah went down and instead of going in a ship that was heading to Nineveh, he went and got in a ship that was going in the exact opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. And we didn't say this last week on purpose because I knew we would kind of hinge point and start here this week. But what we saw in that moment when he steps on that boat and we don't see God fling down a lightning bolt or just snap and make his heart cease to beat, what we saw in that moment was an absolutely bold picture of mercy. (laughs) Mercy is the authoritative withholding of punishment. It's when the person who has the right and the authority and the means to bring discipline or punishment, even when it's deserved and earned, they decide instead to say, in this moment, I'm not going to do that. We, We don't necessarily love mercy when it's given to the people who are hard for us to love, but we sure want mercy when it's our turn to need it, right? And here's God going, hey, I've got a mission for you. I want to send you over here. I want you to say what I tell you to say over here to these people. And instead of going, I can't believe the creator God of the universe just approached me, just spoke to me, just enlisted and empowered me for his mission. And instead of doing that and jumping on a ship to go the right direction, he jumps on a ship to go the wrong direction. And I don't know about you, but if I'm having a bad day and I'm God, I probably go, you're done. Let's move on to the next option. <laughs> Thought I don't know. Maybe that was the Lord telling me. It's time to move. Like you're done. Right? I don't know. God, we like to keep you on your toes. That was all planned. I'm lying. Anyway, okay. But after this big, huge, bold picture of mercy, we want to jump back in and see what happens next. As God has withheld punishment from one who's proven he deserved it, what happens next? We're going to jump in, Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 4, says this. Jonah's on the ship, headed in the wrong direction. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, I want to ask you, I want to invite you to do just a little practice with me in Bible reading and Bible study, memory. Don't look at your scriptures right now, okay? Without looking at your scriptures, if I was to say to you, the story of Jonah is that he gets approached by God. God tells him to go tell the Ninevites. He decides to go in opposite direction. And after we just read it, if I was to say, then what happened next? What just popped into your head? (laughs) Right? Some people, hey, he's asleep. Other people are going, yeah, the the captain of the ship is down talking to him. Right? I, I bet a common thought, though, would be, A common first one to pop up there is a a big storm came, right? Anybody in that, you you don't have to like say it out loud, but anybody in that camp, right? You go, the next thing that happened was there was a huge storm. And you wouldn't be wrong to think that, but there would be a detail that we tend to want to leave out. We're conditioned to not pay attention to. And it's not necessarily a fun detail for our emotions, but it has great helpful impact for us in the long run. And here's the detail. Go back to verse 4 now and look at it. What does it say the very next thing that happens is? The Lord hurled this great wind upon the sea. 
wait a minute, so the, the ship is, is, is so tossed about and they're rocking on waves and there's this huge windstorm and who knows what else is going on and everything's breaking up so much, so it's so bad. They're so scared that, that this crew of this boat is going, hey, this stuff that we're responsible to transport, this is our livelihood, this is how we're going to feed our families, forget it, throw it over. Anything we need to do to try to stay alive is what we need to do. They are in rough shape, but how did they get there? Now, we want to say, hey, well, they got there because Jonah was being disobedient to God. And you could say that, and you would be exactly right. But also don't miss this. It says in verse 4 very clearly, the Lord hurled the wind upon the sea. Some of us are going to have to wrestle with that as people who live the American dream and who believe that, you know, in Disney, nice bow on it type of endings, and everything is always sweet and tastes like sugar. We got to wrestle with the fact that the Lord actually threw the wind onto the sea. He actually is the one who started the storm up. That's tough. I feel like I can feel the weight in the room. It's like, wait a minute. It's not just that there was a storm. It was that it says directly in the scripture, God threw the storm onto the sea. What do you do with that? I would encourage you to trust in the sovereignty of God. When I talk about the sovereignty of God, what I'm thinking about is God's nature to always exercise perfect knowledge, wisdom, ability, authority, and motivation in all things. Right? God, just by his nature, he's not having to work up and try to present something to you that he's not. It's just who he is. It's his nature that he always exercises, not just a little bit or some or really good, but perfect knowledge. He knows everything. He knows all the truth. He knows all the details. He knows it. He has perfect wisdom. He knows how to exercise and use that knowledge rightly every single time. He has all the ability in the world. He has the strength to do whatever he wants to. He has all the authority in the world, so he doesn't have to check with anybody to use that strength. And this last one's important. He has perfect motivations, right? That what God does, he's always doing for a right reason. There's never a time when you're having a conversation with God and you go, hey, I... You know, I know you did this, and, and I, I get that it was the right thing, but man, you, that was the wrong reason to do that. No. God, Scripture is really clear, shows us over and over again that God is sovereign. Proverbs 16.33 says this, says you can cast the lot in the lap, but the Lord determines every decision. <laughs> the lot was something that we don't have every detail on, but it was a device used to determine outcomes, right? It's kind of like dice in our day. And they would use the lot and they would throw the lot to help them make a decision or pick a certain person for a certain role. We see it throughout scripture. They use this lot. And here's what the proverb is saying. He's saying, listen, it's your hand that holds the dice, if you will. It's your hand that holds it. It's your strength that throws it down into your lap to determine a decision. But guess what? It's God who determines that outcome in something that small, in something that detailed, in something that might not even be in many instances very impactful. Or meaningful it might seem in life. So if you were to go to this person and go, hey, did you, did you throw the lot? Yes. All right, but, but did, did God make the lot fall? Yes. <laughs> you see that in ancient culture, they had a, a much bigger, more open mindset when it came to multifactorial causality, right? I just said two big words that I, that I don't even, I'm so sorry, multifactorial causality. I didn't even know if I could do it again. I was just trying, right? That they didn't have a problem with thinking about, hey, there are multiple factors pouring into this all at one time. And it's not um, binary such that one has to be true or the other. It's, no, they're both true. So if you went to an ancient farmer and you were to say to him, hey, did you work hard and grow your crops? He would say yes. And if you were to say to him, did the gods bring your crops? Did they grow your crops? He would say yes. 
If you were to say to him, hey, did you work hard and grow your crops or did the gods bring you your crops? He would just probably say, yes. <laughs> Understood that God was ultimately big and huge and can do whatever he wanted to. And that means there are times when God does things that are not necessarily pleasant to us, that there are times when God does things that we wouldn't choose for him to do because he is sovereign. His perfect commitment to his purposes compel him to bring us hardship when it's beneficial. God is so committed to his perfect purposes. He goes, I know what I'm doing. I'm aiming for the exactly right, beautiful, holy outcome. He's so committed to his purposes that it means he will then bring to us hardship when it's beneficial. It's not popular teaching. But, but if you don't want to deal with it, you have to deal with passages that say things like the Lord threw the storm on the sea. You have to deal with things that say stuff like the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. You have to deal with passages that point to God doing things that are difficult for us to imagine having to deal with. Hebrews chapter 12 would tell us that anyone who God loves is also someone that God will bring discipline into their life. That discipline is not a, a statement of displeasure, it's a statement of affection. See, God is so committed to bringing about redemption in those who need it that he's willing to bring pain where it has a purpose. (sighs) Think about teaching a kid to ride a bike, right? A lot of us have done that. When you teach a kid to ride the bike, you're never hoping that they're going to fall. As a parent, I've never met a single parent who's going, you know what, I want them to learn how to ride, but before they do that, I really want to see them fall two or three times. If you said that to me, I would go, well, let's pray, okay, because something's wrong, okay? Like dad's out there pushing the thing and throwing a stick in front of the bike. Mom's over there with the camera like, we're going to get his fall. We're going to watch him fall on video. We're going to send it to everybody. There's going to be blood and carnage. Teeth are going to come out. I'm going to get it all, right? If that were the case, we would go, we need to talk to you about how fit you are to parent your children, right? They're not excited about the pain of the fall, but they know that the fall is necessary to learn how to ride, right? Many of you know, I've shared with many of you, I... My older son, Judson, went through a couple of years of being really, really sick. And we drove hundreds of miles all over the southeast, and we spent money that we didn't have, and God blessed us over and over again. And we, man, we just went after it to try to figure out how to help him. And there were numerous times, multiple times, where we spent great money and great effort for me to sit in a room and sit next to him and watch him be stuck with needles over and over again. And watched him have medicine pumped into his body through an IV that we knew when we get through with this medicine an hour or so later, he's going to puke his guts up and feel absolutely sick and disgusting. Why in the world would a dad go and pursue hurting his child in this way? Bringing pain into his life. I'm only willing to bring the hurt because I believe that ultimately this thing that hurts is going to bring the healing. And can I just say to you that we limit God and we confuse ourselves in our faith when we take the mindset that says, hey, listen, God always punishes those who sin. No, God is rich in mercy. (laughs) He is very patient, the Bible tells us. He's pouring grace out on us over and over again. But we also damage and wound ourselves when we flip over to the other pole and we say, God would never want me to experience anything that's hard. Because when you believe that and you live in that way, then when you hit the hard moment, something has become stronger than your God and your whole foundation just under the surface can be shaking. 
But what if you have a God who is so committed to the story of redemption, who's so committed to wonderful outcomes in your lives and the lives of others who have rebelled against him, that he says, I will even do the hard thing, but I won't do it because I enjoy your hurt. I'll do it because it's going to lead to your healing. The Lord hurls the storm upon the sea. God does hard things sometimes. And if we struggle to believe that, there's one place that we should look first and foremost and most often. It's at the cross. <laughs> That's where God the Father, we're told in the Old Testament, was pleased to crush the Son. He brought pain upon His very own Son. He brought hurt like we cannot fathom or imagine so that there could be freedom and healing for our souls forever. If He'll crush His Son, certainly He'll love us enough to let us have a hard day to let us experience a hard season, to throw a little wind on our seas so that we can figure out how much we need him. That's what God does next in the story, but we need to pay attention to the response that we see, especially from Jonah. What do we see that he was doing? (laughs) There's a storm that's threatening people's lives. They're scared to death. They're throwing stuff off the ship. And we're told that Jonah had gone down into the ship. And as the ship is just about to explode, I'm sure it had to sound like bombs are going off as they're slapping back down into the water. Ship's breaking up. Oh my goodness, we're about to die. Jonah is asleep. I read that and I'm like, that's got to be like a miracle of God that you can stay asleep in that. The only person I know that can stay asleep in that situation is my wife. And she wasn't there in the Old Testament, right? Well, what you see is this, is that there is something going on in the soul of Jonah such that though he is running away literally from the presence of God, though he is rebelling at God, he is spiritually looking at God and thumbing his nose at him and saying, I'm going my way, not your way. Though he's living in that level of rebellion, unfortunately, he's able to be completely at rest. It should startle us. We should be much more bothered and concerned about the fact that Jonah can be restful in his rebellion than we are about the fact that God would throw wind on the sea. This is a guy who's going, I'm doing the exact opposite of what God wants me to do, and yet, I'm chill. I'm sleeping like a baby. I'm absolutely at peace. I feel really good. And unfortunately, when I read that, if I'm honest with you, who I see the most in that is myself. That I know my proclivity to be living in ways and little ways and things that I think are small and aren't a big deal. I know that there are decisions I make or I can say it this way or that way. And I choose this way because it makes me feel, I know there are places in my life where I'm just living in that and I'm, I'm feeling like it's okay. Our tendency to feel at peace while we're running from God should lead us to cling humbly to him. If we really trust our propensity to go, hey, I, I, I feel great about life, even when we're rebelling against God. If we really trust that about ourselves, what we would do is absolutely cling to him. <laughs> I've seen in my lifetime, once in 2000, once there was a huge one in 93, I've seen floods and seen them on TV. Some of you remember these incidents, right? And there's a lot of factors that go into this moment, so I, I don't want to lump everybody into the same basket, okay? But There are times when people don't get the message that they're supposed to leave. There are times when people probably don't have the means that they're supposed to evacuate. I understand all that. But the people that I've never understood, 
The people that I just don't get are the people that on day like four or five of this flood happening are standing on the roof of their house and they're waving for somebody to come rescue them in a boat because they knew that the order was to evacuate. They had every ability to do it, but instead they just chilled out at their house watching TV. Man, are they free to make a decision? Sure, I guess. <laughs> was it a wise one? I would bet they would tell you no when they're standing on their shingles hoping that this rubber life raft is going to make it to them. There was a moment when they knew the direction and they went, nah. (laughs) And now they're standing here going, please rescue me. They were restful in their rebellion against this directive and it led them to a place of absolute despair. How often does that look like us where we're just sitting and chilling in my decision to do this or to not do this? Because if we really trusted that we're those kind of people who would do that, we would absolutely cling humbly to God and go, I know that if I do it my way, if I think that I'm good with you and I just go try to walk in an honorable way, it won't be long before I'm way off course of where I want to be. But if I trust, right, the, the old hymn would say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, I'm prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, God, and seal it. He's going, hey, I know that I'll leave you, so I'm gripping onto you with everything I have because I don't want that to happen. A guy years and years ago, and then Brother Lawrence, who was a monk, that talked about the presence of God, he said, ah, knew we but the grace and assistance we want of God, we would never, no, never leave him. Because, <laughs> hey, if we paid attention to how desperate we were for him, we would never let our minds drift from him. We'd never let our hearts go from him. We would cling to him. See, when I trust my weakness, then I put practices in place that help me cling to strength. And his name is God. My normal practice on a Sunday morning most often is is to get here, sometimes a little bit before 6 a.m., usually around 6, 6 6.15. If it's after 6.30, I'm not here, probably something up, right? Last night, I was going to get in bed. I was absolutely exhausted, and I looked, and my phone was almost dead. It was like at that point where things are starting to move slow on the screen because the battery's about to die. You know what I'm talking about? It feels a lot like my life. When I'm walking to bed, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it all the way there. Right? It was like that. I knew it was dying. I set my alarm, and I thought, I can't just let it die, so I'm just going to keep it right here next to me on the charger right next to the bed, and it'll be here, and I'll do fine in the morning. And I got here today at about 8.30. (laughs) Apparently, I turned the alarm off at one point. Don't even remember doing that. I apparently hit snooze a couple times. Do remember doing that. It's crazy, that little window of time between the two snoozes, right? Feels like it's like, oh, I'm going to get so much rest. It's like seven minutes, and it happens so quickly, you don't even know what happened. You hit it again, right? See, because I know this about me, my normal habit on Saturday nights is to take my phone and either A, have it fully charged, or B, set it on a charger, and I plug it in in the bathroom so that I have to get my fanny up and walk into the bathroom in the morning, Right? The way that I get myself here by the time I want to be here is trusting the fact that if I don't do something about this tonight, then I'm not going to get up and do this tomorrow, right? I have to put it over there. That's how I cling through my weakness to the plan to get there. I have to put something in place. And if we trust ourselves and go, hey, morally, you know what? I can just set it right here. It'll be just fine. Hey, I know I don't do well with this, but, but, but I'll do well with it tomorrow. I'm sure of it, right? I know who I am, and I know I've fallen in this way 7,000 times, but tomorrow's the day. I feel it, right? When we live with that mindset, we're failing to cling to the God, right, who can help us walk out of our complacency and walk out of our comfort with our rebellion. 
being restful in rebellion, though, it's, it's not just a standalone decision. It flows from a heart. Right? There's an internal place of churning. There's a place where this all starts. We're going to see it in the next verses. Verse 7 says this. So they said to one another, this is the, the mariners, the crew of the ship. They said, come, let us cast lots. There it is. They're, they're throwing the lots. They're throwing the things like dice to figure out what's going on. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? (laughs) They're going, hey, we don't know much about you. So who's your mom and them? Right? (laughs) What do you do for work? What do you used to do for work? You got enemies that we don't know about. What's going on? They're trying to get to know this guy because they're suspecting him. Verse 9, and he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And listen to this. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done? I said it way too calm. There's an exclamation point there. I'm sure they were yelling at the top of their lungs over the wind that was whipping past them. Who knows how quickly? What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. What you see from the crew is the response that we would hope that we would have. You see, Jonah is not the, the, the role model. <laughs> He's where we learn what not to do. See, we must not allow ourselves to be comfortable when our character does not match our faith claims. Do you see this in verse 9? What does he say? They're asking about him, who are you, who do you worship, and what does he say clearly? He says, I fear the Lord. Let me just throw a heads up out there, Okay. If the Lord that you fear calls you to go on a mission and you go in the opposite direction and he's throwing wind at you and he's trying to break up your ship and you're asleep and couldn't care less, you probably don't fear the Lord. Right? There's, there's at very least some deficiencies and some weakness in your healthy fear of God at this point. You see, he's making claims and he's saying, this is the statement that hangs over my life in terms of my faith. This is what I'm about, but nothing in his life looks like that. I got into working out years ago. I've been just doing table muscle workouts the last 10 years or so, so it's been a while, okay? But got into working out real big. I had a buddy who was helping me out, and he gave me, he said, man, you, you got to start drinking some pre-workout. If you've been in that world, you know about pre-workout. I had never heard of pre-workout. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but if you tell me, I'll do it, all right? Put it on me. I'll be your Padawan, right? And so he gives me this pre-workout. He says, it's going to help you work out. You're going to be ready at 5 a.m. to do this if you'll drink this. So I'm like, all right. So first day, I drink a couple of scoops and some water. I drink this stuff up. I get there. I'm feeling a little bit more energized. I'm feeling good. In about 15 minutes, I start to feel really strange. Like I start to feel this sensation of things are crawling around on my skin, right? I don't know if you ever had this particular kind of pre-workout or not. I hope not for your case, right? But I, I just kind of push through it for a while and think I'm just losing it. And eventually, I say to them, my buddy who gave it to me and another guy, I go, hey, man, Something's weird, man. Like, I'm feeling like stuff's crawling on my... And they go, (laughs) start dying out laughing. Because they knew it did that, and they gave it to me anyway. Right? They're like, yeah, it does that. It has some stuff in it that makes your blood flow in a certain way, and it'll make your skin tingle. And I'm like, well, that would have been a nice heads up before I put it in my face. You know, like, that would have been great. So I look at this guy, though. I'll never forget, and I go, hey, man, so, like, you think it's so important to have a pre-workout that you drink the stuff that makes this feeling? And he goes... Oh, no, dude, I don't drink it. I can't stand it. That's why I gave it to you. (laughs) It's like, now everything's clear. 
<laughs> so here's the deal. He's willing to pass it to me and give it to me. He's willing to make claims on behalf of it, but he doesn't use it himself. And I'm just wondering how often that's true of my life and our lives as followers of Jesus, that we're marked by a faith that says that God is worthy of our whole lives, and yet there's parts of our lives that we're going, well, no, I don't, I don't employ it there. Right? We should feel uncomfortable. We should feel like something's off when we can look at our faith and go, hey, there's parts of my life that clearly don't line up with that thing that my faith says. Where are those areas in your life? The mariners get it. The the crew gets it, right? They're scared to death. They see the inconsistency and it bothers them big time. Let's finish out this section. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay on us the innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah. I love this. They picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. This is not just a, a little paper cutout that you colored in Sunday school and put on a popsicle stick and you're like, oh, over into the water. This is a guy who was alive and some other guys picked him up in the middle of a storm and were like, you're out of here, brother. Like they tossed him over the ship into the sea and the sea did what? Verse 15, it ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord who made vows. And they made vows to him. Really quickly, because we've touched on this a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, but I would just say this to you. The people who get it right in this story are the crew. Do you see them? Jonah says, throw me in the water and things will get better. Do they immediately throw him in the water? No. It says they rode and they tried hard to figure out any other way to make this work. They're going, I don't want to be responsible for that. It doesn't work out, and they eventually do throw him in the water, and as soon as he hits the water, I love this. He dives into the water, he hits the water and goes under, and the water just ceases. The storm is gone, there's peace. And they see this, and what does it say that they did? It says that they feared the Lord exceedingly. Listen, healthy fear of God recognizes what his good character might compel him to do with his perfect power. We've talked about it. That when I'm fearing God rightly, what I'm fearing is he loves me so much that he'll do that thing that hurts. He'll use his perfect power in a way that won't be initially pleasant for me. This is what healthy fear of God looks like. God has been merciful to Jonah already multiple times. How does Jonah respond to the mercy of God? I can say this to you with with full confidence. If you're sitting here today and you're breathing oxygen, God has been merciful to you over and over and over and over. And he has been to me too. What will we do in response to this God? Will we stay restful in our rebellion or will we become people who go, God, I want to fear you rightly. I want to let you point into my life the places where my character doesn't match my claims. I want to move in the direction that you're moving in. The band is going to come, or some of them, I'm not sure exactly how they're doing that, but they're going to come and play. They can come. We get to respond and worship in a really cool way today. You're going to get to witness a baptism of a heart that God's rescued. 
But before we do that, I just want you in this moment to consider your heart before God. Where might he be triggering something in your soul? You asked him at the beginning of the service. You said, God, if you'll speak to me, I'll listen. Now's the time. How will we respond to this God? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us. Pray you would help us to be a people who have hearts that are sensitive to your guidance, sensitive to your word, sensitive even to your correction. God, that you would help us to have hearts that trust you when it's hard. God, and I pray that we would be people who wouldn't just hear a story about a guy who made a wrong choice, but that we would be people who see ourselves greatly in need of your mercy, and we would find ourselves to be freed by experiencing your mercy and glad to worship you because of your mercy and proclaim you to a watching world. Show us how. Show us what that looks like individually in our lives. Show us where we need to walk differently. Give us hearts that are free to worship you. Let us not be stingy with our worship. Lead us, God, in how we need to respond. Thank you for this moment we're about to enter into. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for your word. We ask you let it impact us as we live worship this week. For your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.